thank, thank you all um, for allowing me to do this. This is pretty humbling and incredible. I, I actually uh, never thought I would be doing this. Somebody said before, like, you went to seminary, you never thought you would be preaching. And it's, it's that uh, I had always been a part of this church. We've been here for a while, and you'll hear that as part of the story, but had never given, uh, part of it is that you all have a great list of Rolodex of, of preachers and pastors that you could call upon and to um, come up and deliver the sermon uh, any given Sunday. And I am extremely humbled, uh, and I mean that in the most authentic way possible that you all have allowed me to teach this morning. Uh, my name is Steve Green. Uh, my wife, Grace, if you haven't met her, is over there. Um, I had a friend uh, in seminary that, one, upon meeting Grace for the first time, came back and said to me, he's like, hey, Steve, Grace is your wife. Huh, didn't know you could do that. And I was like, I think that's a compliment. Uh, but she is clearly my better half, and we have four kids, uh, Ruby, Samuel, Ezra, and John Mark. Um, part of my story is that I'm actually a graduate from Covenant Theological Seminary. I graduated in 2014 with Master of Divinity there. Uh, I was in Topeka. That's where I'm from. Grace is from Lawrence, uh, just down the street at 8th, 9th in Alabama. Um, I went to Topeka High, and I did ministry there for a season uh, at a church, but also with Young Life College. I was the college director for Young Life at Washburn University. And uh, through that, ended up switching vocations. I was the director of uh, policy for the Kansas Department for Children and Families. A couple years ago, we moved up to Nebraska, and I was the deputy director for Children and Family Services, which is primarily, if you think of foster care or economic assistance programs, that was kind of the wheelhouse of what I did. Uh, and then COVID, like so many other people, kind of upended things and was working a lot, decided to wanted to be closer to home next to family, and quite frankly, uh, Grace. Uh, I don't mean this just to flatter anyone, but coming back here, Grace was a huge reason why we wanted to return to Kansas. Um, and so we did uh, a year ago on May 23rd, and I'm, I do governor, government relations uh, at the Capitol um, there. Uh, but uh, thank you again, and that's just a little bit about me, and I'd love to say, if I haven't met you, say hi to you. And uh, introduce myself and my family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, if you have a pew Bible with you, I believe it's page 239. And as you're opening, I just want to give a little bit of background on this book of Samuel. Um, it's unlike some of the other books that we find, uh, like in the Gospels, where it, it makes clear who the author is, whether it's uh, Luke writing the Gospel of Luke or one of Paul's letters. In First and Second Samuel, it doesn't explicitly say uh, who the author is. In fact, it actually records the death of Samuel in uh, chapter 25 of First Samuel. So in all likelihood, it was uh, both Samuel and then his disciples sort of putting together uh, this book. Um, and what we really just need to know, if you could think about the theme of First Samuel, is that it highlights sort of God wanting to install a king for Israel. The focus of these two books is, the, is also on the rise of the monarchy in Israel and ultimately answering the question, who is going to be the king of Israel? Um, up to this point, we've gone through, you're in Genesis and the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, you'd see where God would temporarily raise leaders, especially after Exodus, to fulfill or deliver his people. 
And as soon as, as soon as they are delivered, they kind of immediately fall back into unfaithfulness. And you see this cycle repeating itself over and over again. And then uh, you get to the beginning of 1 Samuel, and it says, and it starts, in those days Israel had, not, had no king, everyone did what they saw fit. That was how judges concluded. You realize when you get to 1 Samuel that things just aren't going well. And so I want us to, as we're thinking about David and Goliath, which is something that you don't even necessarily have to be exposed to Christianity or read the Bible to probably articulate what that story is about. When, I, when we think about that story today together, I want to keep in the back of our minds really who is acting like the king and ultimately, as we'll see, who is the hero or uh, who is uh, the hero that we should be thinking about. So let me pray for us and then I'm going to read the passage out loud and we'll get started. Father God, I just give you thanks for your abounding steadfast kindness. Lord, that uh, you can look at our lives, my life, and see in numerous ways the ways in which we are unfaithful to you. Lord, we say things that we ought not to say. We do things that we know we should not do, either willingly or unwillingly, Lord, we sin against you. And yet, you forgive us, and that you give us your spirit. And so we can come today, Lord, with joy in our hearts, because maybe we got a promotion at work, or our students are graduating from high school or college, or we are facing a crisis, whether it's in marriage or in family or an illness, Lord, that we can all come and gather together as your people and hear from your word and know with certainty that the Lord God reigns over all. And that is what we give you thanks for. So Holy Spirit, would you now come into our hearts and illuminate our minds and our hearts as we engage your word. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read the, the most of the chapter of verse 17. I know it's a bit of a, a, of a long text, but I, I want to do it because I think it's, it's helpful for us as we, we talk about uh, this text. So read with me, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for the battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah, and Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all, and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinabab, and the third, uh, Shammah, or Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brother. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their, th- of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment and as the host was going out of battle line shouting the war cry and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army and David left the thanes in charge of the keeper and the baggage and ran into the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him a daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when uh, he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from, uh, he turned from him toward another and he spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down the, both lions, lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you flesh to the birds and of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I have come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all assembly may know for that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put in his hand his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, and then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates, and, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And together we say, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That was a lot, but it was important first because I was going to read the whole section one way or another. I thought we might as well just chew it off all at once, but to really get a sense of what is going on. And again, a lot of us have heard this story. We've, we've seen it in VBS. It's, it's kind of like, you know, Steve, like the first time that you, you come to teach and you're going to teach on David and Goliath, uh, something that you could have easily got right by looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I agree, it's a, it's a great tale. But I want, us, uh, I want us to think, as we keep thinking about this story, who is coming into focus here and who are we supposed to emulate? Where, where is our role in the story? And I want to start just by asking you a question. Did you, did you have a hero growing up? Um, I did. Uh, his name was Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, uh, some of you know, some of you sigh, you're, you're, you know, my credibility went down ever so slightly by hearing that, but uh, I, you know, I loved Hulk Hogan. He was a professional wrestler, and I can remember uh, Monday nights watching WWF wrestling and hearing sort of the walk-up song of Hulk Hogan's Real American and just getting absolutely pumped that he was going to be uh, wrestling that day. Back then, you didn't know. You couldn't look on Twitter to know who was on lineup for WWF. It was just all a surprise, and it was magical. And what I loved about him is that he was big, and he was strong, and he was the good guy. You'd have all these other wrestlers that they would switch one way or the other, but when I was following wrestling and Hulk Hogan, he was the good guy of good guys. But he had an arch nemesis, and his arch nemesis was Hurricane. And one day, Hurricane put the smack down on, on Hulk Hogan. And I was, and I'm not embellishing this, I was devastated. I saw Hulk Hogan get into that ambulance and go being rushed to the hospital in a neck brace. And I, I could have 
promised you I thought that he was going to die. And at the very end of the episode, it said, hey, Hulk Hogan fans, if you want to send a letter of encouragement to Hulk, here's the address. And you better believe I couldn't wait to send Hulk Hogan, my hero, a letter of encouragement with a gift, which happened to be a 1987 rookie card of Bo Jackson. (laughs) True story. I didn't tell my dad this story until like five years ago because I was so, I I was so nervous to tell him and he still has not, he still has not let me live it down because he was my hero. He was my guy. He was the guy that was willing to step up to the challenge and defeat any enemy in front of him. He was the guy that was able to take a pile driver from Andre the Giant, somehow miraculously wake up and return with a uh, with, a, with his like signature mood, which was with a leg drop, and defeat Andre the Giant. That was my hero. He was strong in all the ways that I wanted to be strong. He was bold in all the ways that I wanted to be bold. So let me ask you, who was your hero? You don't have to tell me. You don't have to. You can tell your your spouse or or your your family who that might have been growing up or even now. It's it's good to have heroes. This even though this the, the focus isn't going to be be like David. Uh, it's okay to have heroes, to, to emulate uh, certain people in our lives, to have examples and witnesses of the faith that we look up to. In recent time, especially in the last few months, uh, many people have hailed the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, as a hero and his willingness to remain in Ukraine during intense conflict with Russia. It's, it's not bad to have someone you look up to. But the thing about heroes, typically, is they, they always fail you. The thing that I've realized as I get older in life, all the people that I look up to at some point stumble. And while we can look up to them, uh, we need to be reminded um, that that heroes ultimately fail us. And in this passage, and really in the book of 1 Samuel leading up to this point, uh, Israel themselves were looking for a hero. They were looking for a king because they wanted to be like other, other kingdoms. Israel was like, uh, if I could just make a bad attempt at rewarding that old country song by Johnny Lee, Israel was looking for a hero in all the wrong places. And as a result, today's passage, much like the Old Testament narratives, is, is this constant struggle of Israel to remain faithful to God and believe his promises, which kind of brings us uh, to this passage. And if I could just give you what the main point of it is, it's, that, it's this, that since the Lord keeps his promise, we must trust him. It's easy to look at the failures in this passage of Saul and the Israelites and say, man, they really messed up, but that would not be me. How could they? How could they witness all these awesome deeds that the Lord had performed in in the history of, of their nation up to that point and in the works of even of Saul and all the victories that God has brought forth, how could they still not trust the Lord? But if we're honest uh, with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I'm no better. When trials test my faith, I'll be the first one to question, is, is God even real? When sorrows and dark nights of the soul visit our minds, we're often tempted to ask, does God even love me? When the world swirls and feels increasingly disjointed and fragmented, we are tempted to lose faith just like the Israelites, and join the chorus of cynicism that plagues our headlines of news, radio waves, and social media fades. But 
what we get from this story today is that we must trust the Lord. And it's two points. Since man cannot save, we must trust the Lord. And I think that's what the passage highlights. And then also, since God saves, we must trust the Lord. Before I get into 1 Samuel 17, a little context is needed to show where we're at and how we got here. So the Lord calls Samuel um, in the very beginning of 1 Samuel in chapter 1 and 2 to serve in, in the, in, uh, with Eli, the chief priest, and it also talks about this ongoing clash between, uh, in the, I think, chapters 3 and uh, 4, uh, this ongoing clash with the Philistines. So we, we get the sense that they're a proverbial enemy of the Israelites, and especially the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel and, Is- and the Israelites are able to subdue the Philistines for a time, and in 1 Samuel 8, we see that after they're able to subdue the, the Philistines, that the Israelites demand a king. They wanted, as they said, they wanted a king to rule over them because they wanted to be like the other nations. For Israel, trusting and relying on the Lord alone wasn't good enough. So God allows them to choose a king based upon their own criteria. And this is where it really gets interesting in the, in the narrative of, of 1 Samuel. It results in them choosing Saul. And the thing that we need to know about Saul is he isn't chosen because he's faithful. He's not chosen because he can show show complete reliance and trust in the Lord or that he believes God will save his people. They choose Saul because he's tall and he's good looking. And that was a criteria for them in wanting to uh, install a king was to have somebody that looked the part, looked kingly, handsome, a head above, as, as the Bible, or as the scripture says, a head above everyone else. But there's one qualifier about Saul that we need to pick up on here, is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And for the readers, and even for those choosing Saul, the Israelites that chose Saul, that was, that's a, a no-no, that's a warning sign that this isn't, this isn't right. And where that comes from is in, in Genesis 49.9, Jacob, as he's getting, getting ready to pass along, he brings his sons to gather towards him, and he proceeds to bless him. And as he's blessing Judah, he says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The king was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, but Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. There's conflict. Saul isn't the king that Israel's supposed to have, but he's the king, as we'll see, that's, that the Israelites wanted and that they deserve. The other thing, just a quick note in, in sort of our understanding of the king's relation to God and his people, or the Lord and his people, is that the king was sort of the representative of, of the people. And so often you'd see, as the king goes, so do the people go. And at first, Saul is victorious. He's installed king, uh, he's anointed, and he immediately starts to have victory. And in the, sort of the middle half of Samuel, 1 Samuel talks about the victories that Saul is uh, achieving. But it gets, it gets ugly really quick. In two instances, in 1 Samuel 13 and 15, we see that Saul directly defies God's orders and attempt to save the situation. The first is he's waiting for Samuel to come. He gets nervous. His troops are starting to leave. And even though God is saying, I will fight your battles, I will win your war, Saul gets nervous, he panics, and he starts offering unauthorized sacrifices. And so Samuel admonishes him for that. And then the other one is in chapter 15 when they go and they uh, pursue their enemies, and, and Samuel says, devote everything 
everything to destruction. And Saul sees an opportunity to keep some of the spoils of war. And so you have this pattern within Saul that when, when push come to shove, he will do what's right in his own eyes and he will express a certain unfaithfulness. And in that, the, the, the nation of Israel also is manifesting that unfaithfulness, which, all, which brings us to 1 Samuel 17. And when we get to 1 Samuel 17, we see that Israel is in trouble. Turn with me, if you would, just back, look back at 17. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah. Up to this point, primarily, they had not been in the land of Israel itself, but now they are not only just on the borders of Israel, they're actually in the, in the territory of Israel. This is a problem. And as the narrative talks about, that we have uh, this Goliath that comes out. And uh, a topic for another day is all the different details about Goliath. What, you know, was he nine foot nine inches, which is what the estimate would have been? Was he, uh, how much was his armor? How long was his spear? What did it look like? All those things. The, the point that we need to hear more than anything is this was an imposing figure that was coming out from the Philistines, and he was defying the living God. And he said they did that for 40 days, in the morning and the evening, which would have been around the time that typically the Israelites would have came to offer their own sacrifices. So he was, if you can imagine, as they were, they were worshiping, gathering together to worship, you had this Goliath shouting insults to Israelites saying, I defy you. At one point you're going to serve me. You are going to serve me. It's going to come. And you can all just imagine how, how menacing that would have been. But... Saul's their king, right? Saul, Saul's the guy. He's, he's strong. He's good-looking. He's ahead above everybody else. And as it says in 1 Samuel 8, that the king would go and fight the battles for his people. So in this story, in this moment, we would expect Saul to come out and say, enough of this. I'm going to stand up to the Goliath. But he doesn't. Not at all. Instead, Saul and Israel, in verse 11, it says, I, after the Philistine says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul was not the king that God wanted, but it was the king that the Israelites had asked for and ultimately deserved, and he was failing miserably. For whatever reason, and we can just begin to think about that, they had, they had thought in their hearts that we can just, we can trust our own efforts. We, if we just get the right king that looks good, that plays the part, then, then surely that will bring us to a place of prominence, and people will, will uh, respect us, will fear us, because we have Saul. And that idea that we can somehow uh, save our, ourselves, that we can fix our situation around us, is just pervasive in our own lives, in the lives of human beings. When, uh, it's amazing how often when uh, I feel like a kid sometimes when I get caught because I go back to wanting to immediately start covering my tracks, you know, if I get in trouble or if my kids get in trouble, uh, the, the way in which they think that they can save themselves by fixing their own, their own um, mistakes and instead of just admitting that, that we've done something wrong. And we can apply that to our spiritual life. So when I did Young Life College, uh, we had a lot of students that came from rural parts of Kansas. And I just kind of assumed naively that they were all Christians because they would say that they're Christians. 
And I remember having a conversation with a young, um, a young gentleman who was getting ready to leave, and he'd been a part of my ministry for two years. And I, I said, we, we just had this conversation, and somehow uh, he had mentioned that somebody had talked to him about the gospel. It was, a, it was a cult that was on the campus at the time, and I said, so what did you say when they asked if you're a Christian? And he said, well, Steve, you know, I've pretty much been a good person my whole life. I think it all kind of works its way out in the end. And I was just appalled that I had not, at that moment, that he had been in two years of my ministry, that I had not known where he was at spiritually, that that that, that sort of moment that I had realized that there was a lot of, of those types of students that come from great churches all across the, the, the state that just kind of think that, you know, in the end, it all just sort of works itself out, and I think I've been a good person, and why wouldn't God not let me go to heaven? And, and that, I would say, I would submit that view is actually a lot more, so, uh, more prevalent, especially in this part of Kansas or in this part of the states, than we may think it is. We cannot save ourselves. And so part of the, the story uh, of this story is what we need to highlight is that part of finding a hero, I'm going to take a step back before that, part of what we need to realize is that we can't save ourselves, but, but God ultimately can, and that by acknowledging our failures, acknowledging our inability to work ourselves into salvation is a means for us to embrace the gospel. So a decade ago, to illustrate, was, uh, there was a funeral for Otto von Habsburg, the last crown prince from the Austrian-Hungary Empire. And you can find the, the burial process, uh, procession online, um, but it starts at St. Stephen's Cathedral, and it's a, a Capuchin church, and it winds its way through Vienna. It's this really, actually, really moving scene. And when the, um, the funeral cart arrives, the usher knocks on this crypt, the, the royal crypt, that's in inside of a church, three times. And I'm going to read kind of the, the dialogue that occurs. So uh, the, the man knocks three times, and a priest responds, who is it? And this is what the, the usher says. Taking on the role of herald, they begin to read Otto of Austria's numerous titles. Former crown prince of Austria-Hungary, royal prince of Hungary and Bohemia of Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, Galatia, Lodomera, Illyria, Grand Duke of Tuscany and Krakow, Duke of Lorraine, of Salzburg, Steyr, Carinthia, Carnola, and else. And the, the, the monk or the father replies, we do not know him. And there's silence. And then the usher knocks three more times on the door. And the, the monk on the other side of the door says, who is it? And so the usher says, Dr. Von Hopsburg, many secular titles and awards, president and honorary president of the Pan-European Union, senior member of the European Parliament, honorary doctorates from numerous universities, honorary citizen of so many communities in Central Europe, member of honorable academics and institutes, and so on and so on. And the priest behind the door says, I do not know him. And so the usher knocks a third time. And the response is, who is it? And the, the usher responds, Otto van Habsburg, a mortal and sinful man. And upon hearing that, the, the monk on the other side says, so may he come in. And I love that. Um, I'll, uh, sorry. I love it because it is, it is our, friends, it's our picture. 
we are, on our own merits, so helpless in front of an infinite, holy, and righteous God. And I don't, you can be a CEO, you can win at, you can win at every competition that you have that has been placed in front of you. You can be head of your sorority or fraternity. You can be cum laude, summa cum laude. You can be a successful business person, or you can be just flat out ordinary. And we are all unified by the same thing, that we are under the curse of sin. There's no getting around it. And so I don't want anybody here today to think that, that there is anything that you can add to your salvation. There is nothing that you can do that you can accomplish to save yourself. Only Christ saves. Only God can save. And so it's, it's in full picture in this story. Only God saves. We can't save. And to the second point, only God can save. Thankfully, though, not everyone was, was fearful of Saul. And so an unlikely character who was in, secretly, kind of quietly anointed in, in, in the previous chapter comes into the scene, and it's great. It's a relief, kind of. And you, and you get that tension. David shows up, and his, his reaction isn't like, oh man, we are going to get, we are going to get waylaid. It's, who is this guy defying the, the, the living God of Israel? That is the right reaction. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine defying the ranks of the living God? Because David is very aware of the fact that, that God's mission in this world is to, it starts with a garden, and it get, begins with a people of promise, and as that nation grows, that, the, that he knows, assumedly, that the end game is that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. That is where it is going, and David recognizes that as a young youth, which is just a side note, as, as a good covenant church, uh, never, never miss the opportunity for somebody that's younger than you, especially uh, teenage or younger, uh, to uh, encourage you or in, encourage your faith, if that makes sense. Um, I, as a parent of four, am just humbled by how often uh, my sin is left exposed, and it's from my kids being able to uh, encourage me or to um, say a word that's, that's just really helpful. Like, I, that's a side point that just popped into my mind, but we should never, just remember that. Like, as a covenant community, um, we get to bring up the children of, of the covenant, but we also uh, get to enjoy the benefits of them being part of the covenant community. And I just admire what David says. He is upset that nobody's doing anything about this Philistine who is defying the name of the living God. And so David looks and he says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? And in, the, in, in verse 26, and, and the response from everybody is, well, first he finds out there's a reward. But then he goes and he, he talks to his brothers and his brothers are like, David, you just come here to watch a fight. Go back to shepherding and doing what you're doing. This is, this is sort of like real men's stuff. You go back to the fields and take care of your sheep. Somehow, Saul gets word of this. And so, so Saul asks him um, to be brought forward. And when, when, when he's brought forward, uh, at first, Saul's reaction is, you, you, you cannot defeat this guy. There is no chance for you. 
and, and then David says, well, but actually there was a time that I, I, there was a lion that was chasing after the sheep and there was a bear. And when that would happen, I would take the staff that was with me and I would draw with my bare hands or by its beard, the sheep out of its mouth and I would save them. And just like the, I did to those sheep, I can do this with Goliath. And in some ways, inexplicably, Saul's like, okay. <laughs> like that's, like, like that seems insane that he goes from we're dead meat to here you go, uh, good luck, God be with you. And I think that just really highlights sort of where Saul's mind is with things. Like he's just not really thinking well. He, he lacks faith in God, and he puts his faith in everything else. And rightfully, though, in this case, he, he allows David, he lets David uh, go confront Goliath. And what we see in the narrative is that he offers him his, his sword and his shield and all the armor that he has, and it's too heavy. He can't fit it on. It, it, it's, it's clunky. And so David takes his sling, which is the tools of a shepherd, and he takes five smooth stones with him, and he goes to confront, confront the Philistine. Now, quick aside, I've actually been to that, uh, the brook that this battle took place, uh, and if you go there, you actually will see that there's like, has anybody been to that, to that brook? Uh, there are tons of smooth stones everywhere. It's incredible. It's almost too incredible, and I thought, man, I'm, I was there, and they let us take five stones home, and I was looking at which one I could get, and I was like, ah, oh, this, this looks too big. It couldn't have gone in sling. Ah, oh, this one looks just right, and I was just so happy. And, uh, and then I came across an article uh, a few years back, and it said that Israel, because it's such a highly uh, tourist place, that they actually bring uh, truckloads of smooth stones for all the people to take a souvenir. So, uh, an aside, if you go to Israel, just... Re- just the chances of you finding the original stone is very, very, very next to impossible. But with that, he grabs the smooth stones, and what does he do? He sees David, or he sees Saul, and he says to him, then David said in verse 45 to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all Israel, or all the earth, may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. Now in that admission, in that statement, David is saying that I'm about to kill you, but it's not me. It's the Lord. He, he rightfully recognizes that the Lord is going to bring about this victory, and it's only through the Lord. He also uh, makes the note that the whole earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and I think that's just a really interesting uh, sort of remark, that it's, it's sort of that fulfilling out the mission of God in which the whole earth will know about the knowledge and glory of the Lord. And, and David, in pun saying those things, the, the Philistine is, was insulted that David uh, would even come, rushes towards him, and in that moment, David slings one stone, it sinks in his forehead, and just like that, Goliath is done. And, and what this story is, and, and sometimes I've had fr- conversations with friends that say, oh, Steve, like, do you really believe that? Like, do you really believe, like, this Goliath, like, one stone killed him and it, you know, he's battle hardened and he somehow is killed by the shepherd boy. I'm like, yeah, I do. 
it's hard to believe. I think that's the point of the story. It's the only way this happened is because God was clearly working in this moment. And so David kills, uh, kills the Goliath, and it says this, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew out its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was de- dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as, as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shereem as far as Gath and Ekron. Now, who is the hero in this story? Let me ask you this. Who are we supposed to be like? Is it David? We know it's not Saul. If you just Google David and Goliath, you're going to pull up, which I did, tons of articles, tons of blog posts, tons of books that say, be like David. Fight the giants in your life. Whether it's an addiction, whether that's that boss that's been nagging you, whether it's the the promotion you've always wanted, fight those Goliaths like David. Use sort of unconventional tools, just like David did, to achieve your victories. Go forth and do it. Friends, that is not what this story is about. That is not who we're supposed to be like. Who's the hero? It's God. God is the one that produces the victory. So ultimately, who are we supposed to be like? It's the scared, afraid, terrified Israelites at the very beginning of the story. They are terrified because they don't know what's going to happen. They think this is the end of the road. And God shows up. So much so that at the end of the story, the the, the men of Israel are yelling, screaming, and pursuing the Philistines. They are the victorious ones. And and friends, if I could just say one thing, uh, we came back to grace at a really sort of wild time in our unique moment in history, in the middle of COVID. And what I can tell you about, uh, just as a former person in ministry who's been in several different churches, I can just tell you that there is not a lot of happy churches in this world right now. They're just ain't. And, and I'm sorry for being, uh, using the word ain't uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, but I'm from central Topeka and it happens. <laughs> There's just not a lot of happy church, church members right now. And, and part of it is that uh, I'm worried, I'm concerned that we are embracing the cynicism of the world that surrounds us. And we, if we're not careful, and if I'm not careful, we can forget that the, the story is moving forward into which the entire world knows about the glory and knowledge of the Lord. And so, like the Israelites who were afraid and scared, so God shows up. He delivers his people because God cannot do anything but be faithful to his promises. He can't. And so like the Israelites, we need to remember that God is faithful. You know, the thing about Hulk Hogan, he was a great hero for a time. And then I, I think it was in middle school, I watched a documentary about Hulk Hogan. And I was like, ugh, I need to reconsider my heroes. You know, and, and maybe you've had that moment in your life where somebody you've looked up to has, has failed you and you realize, man, that, that person that I really looked up to wasn't such a great hero as I thought they were. Maybe they, they, for whatever reason. But the, but the point that if I could just close with is that uh, only, only God can save. Only God can save. We cannot save ourselves. And we know that in all the ways that David was, was, was powerful and strong 
and, and uh, victorious, so much so, so is Jesus on Calvary, right? David fought Goliath, and the, the Israelites received the benefits of David's victory. And we, as God's children, as followers of Christ, receive the benefits of Christ's victory on, on the cross as crucified and bloodshed for our sins. We get to partake in that. We get to enjoy that. It's this, that, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules over all things has been given all authority, can look at us, his children, and say, Jake, Josh, Sid, I am with you to the end of the age. That is our God. Let's pray. Father God, we are just thankful that you, you hold, uh, you do not hold our sins against us. Just as we heard in our confession, Lord, and assurance of salvation, Lord, and of forgiveness, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you forgive us so that we can live lives not hampered by the fear of men, not hampered by the fear of circumstances, though those will be ever so prevalent in our lives, Lord, that we can stand knowing that we are forgiven by a just, righteous, and holy God. And we give you thanks for that. Lord, thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for your word and for your son Jesus who not only lived but died a death that we could not have ever endured so that we may have life everlasting. Help our hearts to be encouraged this week as we go about as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.